0: Welcome to CII Podcasts.
1: Srini has over 30 years of global experience as a CEO, business leader, and an entrepreneur at the intersection of professional services and technology. He is a subject matter expert in strategy, organizational transformation, operations, improvement, and analytics-based digital solutions. Before joining PMI, he was the managing director of Arthur D. Little India based in New Delhi, re-establishing the firm in India. He has also served in several senior leadership roles at Atran Technologies and Hay Group India. Srini has a doctoral degree in Business Education conferred by University of North uh, Colorado, an MBA from Eastern New Mexico University and a Bachelor of Accounting degrees from the University of Madras. And he's based out of Gurgaon. We'll move to our esteemed panelists, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a brief about Dr. Natarajan. He's the founder of 5F World, a platform dedicated to investment and mentoring of startups, skill platforms, and social enterprises. He is also chairman of Honeywell Automation, India Limited, Skills Alpha, Pune City Connect, and Lighthouse Communities Foundation, and also co-founder of Global Talent Track, Carlson Advisors, Center of AI and Advanced Analytics. He is a distinguished alumnus award winner of IIT Bombay and NITI. Dr. Ganesh led two corporate success stories with distinction, namely APTEC and Zensar. He is an independent director on the boards of State Bank of India, Principal Asset Management, Hinduja Global Services, LHI Digital, Educate Girls. One crowd and the Asian Venture Philanthropy Network. He's also a member of the Chairman Council of NASCOM and the National Council of All India Management Association. He's been Chairman of NASCOM and NASCOM Foundation, President of HBS Club of India and s- served multiple terms at the National Council of CII and even the Smart Manufacturing Council. We're honored to have you here. Ganesh is an alumnus of BIT, Mestra, NITIE iit bombay and the harvard business school he's an author of four mcgraw hill books on business process reengineering and knowledge management and six other publications on the it industry and inspired generation and, and gen y he specializes in leading teams and business and building businesses his five-way approach consists of fast focused flexible friendly and fun with this I now invite the dignitaries to the discussion and request Dr. Srini Srinivasan to take the chat forward with Dr. Ganesh. Over to you, Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to have somebody of the stature of Ganesh on this program, and I think all of us in the audience are going to walk away enriched at the end of this session. No, no pressure on you, Ganesh. No pressure at all. Uh, since uh, this is a fireside chat and you're sitting closest to the fire. I think uh, we'll call that a hot seat. So you're on the hot seat for the next few minutes. Uh, let me set the context for this discussion, Ganesh, for the, for the benefit of our audience. There is a school of thought that is gaining a lot of momentum globally, and that, and that is that we live in a project economy, i.e. virtually everything we do in our professional lives or our personal lives is a project of some sort we don't necessarily have to be part of a project management organization or we don't have to be a designated project manager virtually every one of us is running projects of our own wherever we are and that therefore one of the best ways to strengthen our economy one of the best ways to uh, future-proof India Inc. would be to ensure that all organizations, whether in the private sector or the public sector, have access to good internal execution skills, i.e. through good project or program managers. So that is really kind of the hypothesis uh, for, for, for our discussion. And I don't want to talk about theory because we have you here, Ganesh. You've done an enormous amount, Uh, but I want to kind of uh, distill your practical experience for the benefit of all of us. You have built global organizations with your own hands and with a tremendous team behind you. Uh, uh, One of them is Zensar. I had the privilege of being part of your extended team for a short while there while you were doing that and Aptech and so on and so forth. When you look back at those journeys, where you took an organization from point A, to point B, and then beyond. What would you say was really part of your recipe? What were the ingredients that went into that type of a journey that you uh, that you took these organizations through? Thank
0: you, Srini. Always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And uh, I mean, I was actually reminded of Prime Minister Modi's Independence Day speech where he talked about resetting the goalpost to India at 100, which is at 2047. And if you want one example of a project economy, I think it's what India can become. Because everything we're doing today is oriented towards literally building some level of supremacy. I wouldn't say number one, but somewhere in the top three nations of the world by 2047. And I was talking to my friend Nandan the other day. And if you look at what they're trying to do with the, what is called the ONDC, Open Network for Digital Commerce, I mean, it is literally looking at India as a series of ecosystem platforms. You've had a stunning success in payments with UPI and today, every chaiwala is saying, sir, Google pay karo, rather than taking pay cash. It's this amazing success. I mean, imagine in the project, project economy of 2047, if none of us had to spend cash, that's one part. But apart from that, know everything was available on a platform, whether you're an SME, or whether you're in healthcare, or skills, or education, or CII for that matter. That, you know, I think that's a project worth aspiring to. And it'll actually take us way beyond the rest of the world in terms of the sheer interplay of technology, processes, and culture, and which is what we're beginning to see happen. But so to come back to your question, I'll go back to my most recent full-time experience. As many of you know, I joined Zensar Uh, in 2001, after a very, very successful stint throwing the hell out of a company called Apptech. And I really had no expertise in software exports, which is what the company was. Sadly, neither did the company, because it was a hardware company which had kind of morphed by selling off the hardware business. If you have to look at this, like Prime Minister Modi is looking at India at 2047 or India at at 100 years, as one big project with a series of sub-projects. The first question, One has to ask yourself is why do we exist or why would we exist in future? I mean, for India, it's pretty obvious. I mean, we have to put 300 million Indians to work, which is the biggest motivation you can get. But for a software company, which in 2001 was just under 40 crores, had about 800 people, didn't deserve to exist. It was just an accident because the hardware business got sold and what was left was the software business. And there was no particular agenda. So I think, my own experiences, and you were talking about expertise, and this is again 2020 hindsight. And if I look back, I think we got a bunch of 20 people together, what Harvard Business School and its very well-taught case study calls the vision community of Sensor. And The vision community's first task over maybe a three weeks of discussions was saying, why do we exist? And the simple answer we could have given ourselves was, oh, we exist, we're a small software company. I mean, we are I mean, probably a hundredth of the size of Infosys and 150 of the size of TCS, so we are small boys and we should play in a part with small clients and in fact that was the advice I got from many many well-meaning analysts saying don't try to hit above your weight, just stay within slowly building the business. When I talked to my team and said look is this why we should exist, there was no joy, there was no excitement in that room and they said look I mean we are a bunch of really good guys. We have all come from different companies, and you have a great track record of building an, a previous company. Apte, why we should exist? That a uh, Cisco Systems or a Marks and Spencer or a Fujitsu or a John Lewis, all brand leaders in the parts of the world. Why would they look at us and say that? Look, we would work with these guys rather than work with a Capgemini or a IBM or a TCS. So that was. That is the first question we had asked, and my own belief in any project economy is we have to ask ourselves question. Why do we want to be, why do we want change? Because once you can articulate the why, as my, my current guru Simon Sinek says, the what and the how will follow. So we started by saying, why does any software company exist? Now the logical answer you will find if you think about it is, India is full of tons of engineers, they come at a one-fourth, one-fifth of the cost of a typical equivalent or comparable American engineer. Let's leverage the cost by which time a lot of our companies have also already become what is called CICM level 5, which is the highest set of process maturity. So we have the quality going for us, we have low cost going for us, and just go out and make it happen. And I asked my team saying that, okay, this is obviously what the genetic structure of our software business is in this country. And whether it's TCS or Infosys or Wipro or HCL or all the leaders of then and now, that that is the code. And we said, if we go out and say that, look, we are the poor man's TCS, we're not going to achieve our objective of the big guy's talking to us. So I still remember, and I have this, and there's actually another case written about it. If any of you are interested, I can celebrate it. you. It's called the Innovation Process for uh, Zensar. And I had a really bright CTO, Chief Technology Officer, who even now is a very close friend of mine, called Dilip Pitera. And Dilip came up and said, look boss, if the whole world thinks that the rise of the three of the software industry is to, to write, is to get you know coders and programmers and write business solutions. Why don't we go out and tell the world, look, we will build a company which does not use programmers? So what do you mean? I mean, are we kind of killing our own company before we start? He says, no. Today, a lot of these templates becoming available, and you know, we can actually make uh, what what he called solution blueprints that if, let's say, Marks & Spencer as a retailer wants a solution that will cover their entire foods business, we can understand the business need, put it into this solution blueprint, if you will, and it'll come out with a blueprint, which is obviously written in some programming language, but it's programmerless programming. So all of us took a couple of days to digest this. And of course, we told Dilip, show us how. And he showed us a little prototype and potentially it could work. Of course, a very small prototype. And that's when the big project started. And we said the first element of this project that we have to do is correct our own mindsets. I mean, as leaders, although we were intelligent people, it took us time to assimilate that such a heretic proposition could actually be taken to the market. The second is we had 500 programmers working with us and we couldn't go and tell them, Hey guys, we decided your jobs are obsolete and we don't need programmers anymore. Okay, so these were the two challenges. And I won't get into this in detail unless any of you're interested. But I, I remember what we said is the first credibility gap is getting a customer to believe in this. And I still remember we had an opportunity through an introduction. We got I'm giving you a real name so that you know it's not made up. So There's a guy called Stuart Sr. who was the CIO of Marks & Spencer in UK. And we got a call from him saying that, look, I've heard that you guys do work in retail. So we are putting out a bid and you want to meet me next time, you come. And I remember Dilip and I immediately got onto a plane and we said, Oh, anyway, they're in UK next week, we'll meet you on Tuesday afternoon. I remember sitting in his office and looking at Stuart Senior and saying that, look, we are not a software company from India, although you called us said, What do you mean? So we gave him the story that we are a solution blueprinting company, da, 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 etc. And I remember Stuart looking at us, he looked out of the window and said, yes, and pigs will fly one day. One of the classic British cynical comments I heard. So we said, just give us a chance, we'll prove it. He threw us out. Two weeks later, I get a call from his office saying that Mr. Senior was saying that, look, we have this application to be built for the foods business and we're giving it to our traditional vendors, so one large European vendor and one large Indian company and we'll give you a chance. So we said, absolutely. So he they sent us the specifications of what was required. It was really a foods arousing and stocking management system. And we, of course, use some of our tools, use some programmers, to be quite honest. And we sent it to him literally three days before the deadline. And he called us back and said, hey, I love you guys. I mean, you're fast, you're quick, and it seems to work. And from there, there was no looking back. I mean, although Dilip was our chief technology officer, we said, look, if this project has to be managed, you manage this project. We actually created a new division, which was a project division called ITS, Innovative Technology Solutions. But Dilip to run it, although he had no experience of profit center management, And within four years, we had a story that everybody at least talked about. I mean, we had some big failures as well. So it's not like the story is all great. But when we designed this whole company transformation as a project and got a project manager as a kind of passionate evangelist who really believed in it, I think he made that happen. And to cut a long story short, I mean, then we kind of, we went through maybe three cycles of change. First was to create, create this, what we call a blueprint foundry which were deployed in Boss, which is where Srini, you and I met. I mean, where we got in consultants like, um, like Srini's company then and BCG, say, so help us to articulate this process. And before we knew it, we were pretty strong on market leading in retail and manufacturing, etc. And in the last five years of my tenure, I mean, we just focused very heavily on digital. Because digital blueprints were obviously, even today, when I talked about the platforms, that's what was happening. And before we knew it, I mean, in the last five years of my tenure, 2011-16, We actually, our market capitalization grew 44% per year, which was the highest for any company on the Bombay Stock Exchange. So it was a great fund, and we built it by being non-believers, by having a point of view which was different from others. And to my mind, great projects are articulated by, as I said, a different why. And then, of course, you figure out what are we going to do to justify it, like our meeting with Marks and Spencer. And the how is a much more painstaking, slow process of taking a group of eight people, the original vision community, and then transferring it across the army. And I mean, we can get into any details. But this has been my experience, Srini. And my belief is, you know, projects is absolutely the way to go, whether you're a country, a society, or a corporation, or even a family. And that will probably change the world as we go.
2: This is a fascinating story, and it's a real story. And it's, it's, uh, as you said, uh, it's something that happened due to the passion of uh, a few individuals And, and I want to dig a little deeper in that, uh, listening to you. It seemed like there were three or four key, uh, uh, elements in this. Uh, one is to start out with a kind of a contrarian mindset to say, why, why in your case, why do we exist? Why would we exist in the future? And, and to me, that's uh, more of an aspirational, uh uh, statement uh something where you 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 kind of look for a uh, almost an impossible goal and say we want to achieve that and then the second part i got out of listening to you is there has to be some kind of a unique dna Uh, in your case that was the uh, solution blueprinting angle Uh, 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 and then as you rightly said how to create an execution uh, 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 capability within the organization. In your case, Dilip uh, uh, jumped into it and started the ITS evolution. Uh, when you put all of that together, would that be in a, in a, in a nutshell, at least the case of the ZenSAR story, uh, the key elements of the transformation process? Very much
0: so. I mean, it also got people I mean, when we grew from that initial 600 to when I left, we were close to 9,000 people. Today's NSAR is almost 14,000 I think the advantage then was that people who came into the organization, and as you know, an organization is nothing but a set of stories. When you hear the, the war stories of an organization, it was always that, you know, Dilip said this and Dinesh backed him up. And once Harvard wrote case studies on us, I mean, then like everybody was reading the case study, when the joined. I mean, one benefit of that was, I mean, here's a little organization and Harvard, and in fact, there's now a third case study on Zensar. So a young person who's joining a company without particularly being impressed by anything, which is the cynical nature of the beast today, had something to, oh my God, this is the kind of company you've joined. So I think it absolutely helps if you get, if you first have a belief in a point of view which is different and you articulate articulated extremely well. But articulating that is sometimes, you know, we don't do it. We just assume that... If somebody joins an Infosys or even a Hindustan or a Unilever for that matter, they're joining because oh, they're joining such a great brand. But today's Gen X or Gen Zs are cynical. I mean They don't join because of a brand, they join because of your purpose. But if you can articulate that kind of a purpose saying we are out to transform the world, I think it kind of attracts a lot. So I think, especially in today's times, even more than it was in 2001 in Zensar, it becomes extremely critical to say, look, we're on this big mission big project, whatever you'd like to call it, and do you want to be part of this vision community that's going to deliver? And I find that, you know, that kind of attracts people. Even today in the startups we fund and mentor, are finding that people who are driven by passion and not just to make money passion, but to actually make a difference, they succeed much more than us.
2: Wonderful. Uh, I just want to ask you about the aspect of building the project organization like you did at Zensar. Uh, if you look at us in the audience, how might we uh, prepare ourselves to be more relevant to the generational tragedies of the world in a situation like that?
0: I think I'll answer that question, Shri, by giving you one more small example. which was Apptech. I mean, again, very similar story. I remember I joined the market leader in in 1988, long, many, many years back. NIIT in Delhi and I was actually running that corporate training business and one fine day I think it was in, uh, when was it, 2000 September or something, I got a call and I was sitting in Delhi. I got a call from a headhunter saying that, look, we're looking for a CEO of this company called Apptech and would you like to interview with the? So I was 32 and a half years old and I, I mean, there was no self vision of being a CEO or anything like that. So I said, not really, I'm not interested And anyway, I mean, I've heard of is as small company in Bombay and here we are, in NIIT, the great, you know, why on earth would we even consider? But then he, they said, look, come I in, this gentleman, Satul Nishar, who's the founder of Apple, or in those days, Apple Industries. He's coming to Bombay, he's coming to Delhi, sorry, would you like to at least meet him for lunch? I said, sure. He's coming to my city and he's the founder of a company, So sure, I'll meet him. So One thing moved to there and I, before I knew it, I think it was uh, August of 2001, not 2001, what am I saying? Uh, August of 1991. I became the CEO of Aptec. okay. And I still remember and I joke about it, saying that NIIT was about 41 crores, aspiring to be 100 crores, long time back, remember. Aptec was, when I asked Satul, so what is the revenue of Aptec He said it's about four crores, which is about one-tenth of NIIT. It's not bad. What I did not ask is, what was the profit of Aptec at that point? And I found it to my horror that it was making 10 crores loss. Now, it needs caliber to make 10 crores loss on a four crore revenue. Right. But I'm just saying, they had over invested in a brand, and if any of you were in Bombay in the 80s, we had these three, one humongous center in, in, the, in the Fort area of Bombay, and one in Ballard, and one in Santa Cruz, etc. And I still remember, and the reason I'm telling you this is to answer your question. The first day I was there, somewhere in the middle of August of, of 1991, I remember the team that I was going to meet, they said, look, uh, if you don't mind, we'll meet in the smaller conference room. Because the boardroom is occupied by a franchisee, so I said, I think franchisee are part of our process. He said, Yeah, but you know, franchisees tend to be very uh, arrogant and rude at times, etc., etc. So I, I found him very curious. I'm here. Are, here we are running three of our own centers, and here is our first franchisee. And I heard a lot about these guys. and mean, they were all IIT, IIM, you know, exp three guys with experience. And I remember I couldn't resist. I said, No, I'd like to meet them before they came. And they came in and I said, look, hi, I'm the new CEO. I just joined today, etc." And they give me a, they gave me a litany of problems. I right? know we don't get this on time. Nobody tells us the marketing strategy. We get a bill for advertising, etc. And I remember going back to the team and said, guys, if you got to grow this company, we will have to shut down our own centers and just work with franchise. That will teach us a lesson that our salaries will be paid by the franchise. And again, to cut a long story short, I remember, you know, About six months later, we had a kind of a visioning session and as I said, we had about seven total centers at that time. I said, what could be the vision for 2000 and somebody said, we should be at least 100 training centers and at least one training center outside India, maybe in Dubai. So this was the extent of our vision. And I keep saying, thank God we didn't write it down. Because when I left Aptech in in 2001 to join Zensar, we were 1400 training centers in 42 countries. We were market leaders in 24 countries, including China. And it just came from a lack of fear. So the answer to your question is, first of all, don't take status quo as granted. Why do we assume that by using the word franchisee, that guy is inferior to us? And he said, we must get people who will not join us as employees because they are very, very good in their own right. So we first banished the word franchisee. We call them business partners. And every one of us was, I mean, we actually recreated the organization chart. I remember we drew student at the top of the organization chart, then the faculty or the trainer, then the center owner, then the person who has what we call network support, supporting the net franchise network, and finally the vice president and the CEO right at the bottom. And we used to proudly show it in every center, it was displayed. People said, wow, the students, the customer is now on the top of the pyramid, and I have access to the next level. So I'm saying, again, this is a mindset shift, but when we got it, got there, and we could just build this enormously successful family. So I think that is, I mean, I say, I'm just saying that again, back to my basic principles. In fact, I, we created the culture of 5F, which Poonam just read out, fast, focused, flexible, friendly fund in aptec. And that fast, focused, flexible, friendly fund, we could extend even to the last franchisee in Madikere in Karnataka. Because we really, they felt they fun. I mean, I've actually met so many people on flights in those days. We're just chatting and sitting next to me, next to you. And I, I, I remember asking this elderly gentleman, so what do you do, sir? So he said, I'm chairman of Aptech. I said, wow, <laughs> <laughs> I just come from a meeting with my boss who was the chairman of Aptech. He gave me his card It's chairman of Aptec Derado. So then we actually calculated. There were actually about 45 people carrying chairman of aptec cards. And of course, about 400 people carrying CEO of Aptech Nothing wrong with that. They had a pride in doing that. I mean, who am I to object to that? I'm saying by making people feel included. And part of this passionate big plan, we were building a project. Our first project was to become the market leader in India and then to become market leaders in multiple, countries. But you know, people never thought it was any, any task was too daunting. And I think that's true for all of us today, it's true for the country. We have to make that happen.
2: Wonderful. There is another topic that I know you're very, very passionate about. And that is, and you've already alluded to it, building digital futures. What is it that uh, we can learn from what you've been looking at?
0: See, that's a long answer itself, Srini, because if you look at, I mean, let me talk about the in, India first. And as all of you know, I mean, India has a target. It was 2024, but it's not going to happen in 2024. It's going to happen maybe three, four, five years later. to be a $5 trillion economy. And the reason being, I mean, I, I, my last book was on comparison between India and China, as you know, I mean, India was just maybe 2.9 trillion in GDP and doesn't change much because last three years, we haven't progressed much, but China is already 13 trillion. But we are saying, and if you read our book, you'll find that we are saying there is a clear pathway to India becoming 40 trillion, while China maybe grows to 55 trillion. At that time, we didn't know China would mismanage COVID so badly. He didn't realize that Xi Jinping would kind of, you know, almost destroy the startup movement. So, I mean, today we have a bigger opportunity than when we wrote the book. But the point I'm making is, when, whether India becomes a 5 trillion GDP economy in 2026 or 2027, India will become a 1 trillion dollar digital economy definitely by 2026. Because there's so much going for us. I mean, it's not just the 200 billion dollar IT and BPO services industry, which will grow to maybe 350 billion. The balance 650 billion is going to be by the platform economy so it will be not just the ubers and the airbnbs of the world but it will be multiple people offering platform as a choice upi itself i mean if you calculate the numbers is a is a phenomenally high growth story so whether it's agri-tech or health tech or edu-tech and all these things i think it will mature to a level that the trillion dollar British india becomes a reality so that's one the second is if you Peel the onion beyond that and say, what is the digital future for an individual? No individual today can afford to ignore technology. I mean, I'm on the board of State Bank of India and tomorrow we are actually asking our Digibank head, who will be hired from outside, to talk about the digital future of State Bank of India. And today I'm delighted to say that my 89-year-old mother-in-law, okay, who has been a die-hard State Bank account holder forever, her propensity is to still go to the bank branch, have a cup of tea, get her passbook printed. Most most elderly people may feel very comfortable when they have their printed latest passbook in their hand. But you talk to a youngster, the bank branch, why would I ever go there? Everything is on the digital app, you know, etc, etc. So the reality is that all of us have to build a future for ourselves, which mirrors the completely digital economy and are still, as my friend Chandra of TCS says, digital we still should know what are the physical touch points just be required at the same time how much of digital technology. Do we, use? we do a fair amount of consulting in 5F world even yesterday I was talking uh, doing a leadership talk at, for the economic times and our, our, our theory is that anything including digital a digital future for an individual a society a country will happen not because we have the coolest technologies implemented. I mean sure we'll have quantum computing and 5G and you know Reliance Geo will fight with the Ambanis with the Arvanes and and the other and of course the to give you the best technology, but using commonly available technology uncommonly well, that will be the mantra of success. And how will that happen? It'll happen through better business and educational processes. It'll happen through better use of data and analytics. It'll happen through what? In digital, we call mapping customer journeys, employee journeys, etc. We can talk about that if anybody is interested. And finally, it will happen through a culture where even my mother-in-law will happily embrace the Yono app rather than wanting to go and print a passport. Now, this is a humongous task. But don't forget the Chaiwala is now asking for a Google page. If that can happen, there's no reason why our intelligent uh, senior citizens will not also embrace the content. So that's what we do to answer a person. So, I think digital futures it's clearly something we're passionate about. I mean, if we don't uh, propagate it, if we don't adopt it, I mean, we lose our way to somebody else. I mean, there was a time when, you know, I think it's the mobile phone that really catapulted India into this access revolution. Now that we have access, I think building those processes and technologies and cultures is what our option So that's what we do
2: in digital futures. It's amazing. Just amazing. Uh, listening to you, uh, I was struck by something that we at PMI have been looking at uh, as the as the world is changing around us rapidly, even before COVID and now especially after COVID, uh, we started asking business leaders like you uh, in, in about a hundred global companies, what is it that you see as an effective set of skills and capabilities for somebody who can help make things happen for you internally within your organization. And historically, as you know, Ganesh, uh, the focus has been on technical skills, historically, and especially in India. Uh, and interestingly, what we heard back was a very different picture. And I just wanted, I, I'm going to describe the picture to you, and I, I wanted you to uh, react to it if you can. Uh, so what, what these leaders told us is, number one, Yes, technical skills are important, but we want somebody who can create some new ways of working and not be stuck in a uh, prison of some type of a process that they started with. Uh, The second thing that they said to us is we want somebody who understands the business aspects of what they're doing as a project or as a program. We want somebody who understands what the business value is going to be, not just the time and cost and uh, schedule and, and and deliverables. And then the third element that came out in talking to these people is we want somebody who can collaborate with a, a vast variety of stakeholders and, and can collaborate in a, in a, uh, a systematic way, but also collaborate uh, remotely, especially in today's world. Uh, so those were the three elements that came out. And it was a little uh, surprising for us, but uh, I, I just wanted to get your reaction.
0: No, I think you're right. And, and today I think most more so than anybody else. I mean, today, if you look at my industry, the IT industry, I mean, we are, sorry to say this, and I'm sure there are many IT folks who listen to this, but I think we've been caught with our pants down. Because when COVID came in, we very happily said to everybody, I mean, if we had 6,000 employees, we said, Oh, no problem. I mean, you can just work from home, work, go to your hometown, work from there. I mean, you don't have to worry about coming back. And today we find, and I'm, I'm very shocked to sometimes to see these things. I remember I was in Ladakh with my wife in November. And if any of you have been to Ladakh, there is this Lamayuru Monastery, the highest monastery in, really, it's about uh, 10, 20 kilometers from Leh. And uh, 11 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, and we, we went on the top of the monastery and there was a young girl sitting there and we smiled at her and she smiled back and said, are you folks going back to Leh? I said, yes, yeah, so can you give me a lift? We said, sure. And my wife, Uma started chatting with her and we said, okay, where do you work? And she gave us the name of this very big company in Bangalore, which I shall not name. And uh, then we asked her, how long have you been in Ladakh? She said, I've been here for six weeks. So we said, wow, I mean, your company's given you a lot of time. Said, no, no, I'm doing work from home and uh, anyway, I mean, I'm working. I said, what do you mean you're working? He says, look, I mean, I, anywhere I'm, in the, I mean, I'm traveling on most of the time. but you know, I, I log in at 8.30 in the morning on my computer and I leave my computer on in the hotel. And then I get back by 5.30 and I log out again. I'm working. I'm like, oh my God. And that's not the worst of it. I mean, today, I'm sure many of you know, this moonlighting terminology has become almost fashionable. There are debates. Whether somebody who has signed a five-year, I mean, a full-time employment with one company can now go work for three other companies, but still holding that full-time employment. And people say, what's wrong with that? Are we coming in the way of innovation? This guy is not learning anything in his host organization. Surely he can go moonlight somewhere else. I'm not even able to understand why this question is coming up. And I'm sure many of you would have heard uh, Bishop Premji's lament that it's cheating. I mean, to to sign up for a full-time employment and work for three other companies. Right. And If you're a gig worker and you logically say, okay, I'll work 10 hours a week for you, 20 hours a week for somebody, that's fine. But saying that I will work 40 hours a week for you and then and then finding 30 other hours to moonlight, it's just not okay. So why am I giving you this long story? Because you're dealing with people whose expectations have changed considerably. I mean, they, even if you ask people to come to office twice a week, you say, oh, why should I? I mean, I'll come maybe once a month and stuff like that. And this is going to be, take some time to I mean I mean so I was talking to somebody who's in the aircraft engine business and he said how can an engineer sitting with lousy connectivity in a rural village in Karnataka help me to design an aircraft engine. So my big worry as a as a leader of the technology industry is that will we completely lose our sheen and people say okay we'll come to India for back office but all the high-tech stuff will go to the Russias and the Ireland. Fortunately we still have a large population. But I mean this is something to be worried about. So, The reason I'm mentioning this is, it calls for an extraordinary type of leader to retrieve the situation and build a new normal. And and I'll give you again back to my Zensar story. I remember, and this was about six years after we got very successful. And obviously the old band of revolutionaries that we were, was still around. But we said, now we've suddenly grown from 600 people to at that time, we were like 5,000 people. The number of people who are influencing others, the young people are no longer us because we were too high up in the organization. If you there were about you know, 350 managers in seven countries, I said, are they really embodying the values that we we wanted to and we did when we kind of created this company? And the sad answer was no. So then we actually did a complete analysis, I mean, like exactly what you like what you said, Srenee, and said, What is lacking in today's manager? And we found three things. We called it connectedness, development action planning, and feedback. Connectedness is obvious, when you're, when you're living in an Americanized work-life balance kind of thing, when you go home at six o'clock, you know, you enjoy life with your family, so work is what you do when you're not at home. Whereas for people like us, work was life, life was work. We had no concept of work-life balance, but it sounded old-fashioned. But how do you get the energy back into our managers to be true leaders? That is, that is where the 5F culture came. to. The second, which is as I said, kind of development action planning is we do lip service to planning for the future for our people. Do we actually give them tools to say that, look, like if Mr. Modi is saying India at 2047, do we know the pathway? Similarly, so really if I want to motivate a person to be stick around for the next five years, do we know what she's going to do? Not just go and go off on holidays without telling her boss, but actually add value, add purpose to the organization. And the third, which I still find is a problem in Indian companies. I remember in, in my first job, I had a boss and after about a year of working there, not, not my first job, this was actually my my job before acting. And I remember he said, Look, come I in, we have to do your annual appraisal. So I have to give you feedback. So I said, Sure, feel free. He said, No, 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 this is not the right place. So, so I remember, and I was in, working in Mumbai at that time. And he took me to this dark pub somewhere and said, You know, and said, You please, please drink something, drink, drink something. So I mean, without needing to drink, I had a couple of drinks. And then he takes out his little black food. and he says, Look, Seven months ago, on July, this thing, I said this and you said that, which hurt me very much. I told him, buddy, why didn't you tell me then that I hurt you? Why are you waiting for it a... He said, no, no, I thought I would tell you in your annual appraisal. So I'm saying, they are terrible at giving people. Now, we don't immediately celebrate a success. We don't immediately tell you, tell somebody, hey guys, I mean, you shouldn't have said this. And we actually trained people through that. And suddenly we found, it's almost like magic, that by just telling them the boss give frequent feedbacks, Take your team out for a non-work event and have some fun. Make sure that everybody knows what they're going to do with this organization three years from now. It it took an attrition level, which was pretty low in, in our case. We had an attrition of like 15%. It brought it down to 9%. And then, of course, towards the end of my tenure, we started telling even the stock market that, look, we are not your traditional company. Don't talk to us only about profits. We are all about triple bottom line. We are people, planet, profits. And we became the largest supporter of social initiatives in Pune, which is what drives my life even now. And the triple bottom line, which of course, the more fashionable term today is ESG, which I'm going to talk about in the Institute of Directors one hour from now. I mean, environment, social, governance, but getting people to understand that, look, we are here to build long-term sustainable organizations. Getting people to understand that doing social service in the community is not an expense, but an investment in the community in our own future. And getting people to understand that good governance, not taking shortcuts, not allowing people to moonlight, is part of our culture, that changes the thinking of the operation. People also believe that I mean that our managers I mean walk the talk. They're going to practice integrity and honesty and sustainability, and that's the kind of company I want to be. at. So it's actually very easy to do if you think about it. But we just think, oh, it's too much. You know, I mean, so long as my little coterie of you know CXO sweet guys are aligned, we'll take care of the guys. So what if attrition is 18%, we'll replace them by better people. These are all excuses, ladies and gentlemen. We have to worry about, I mean, it's almost like losing a child in your family. When somebody leaves unaccountably, you better find out the reason. Otherwise, you're creating a cascade which will come and hurt you. Sorry for that very, very long answer, but I said, but this is, I think, to your point, we have to build a brand of new leaders who are really project thinkers, who want to make big things happen. They know how to measure, they know how to manage, and they know how to get the people to make it up. So that's why I love the Project Economy idea, because it kind of tells you that, look, life is not endless. I mean, you have to have outcomes, you have to have a process, and you have to get the people to deliver on it.
2: What a, what a brilliant uh, uh, set of principles for us to take away with us. Uh, thank you for that. I, I want to go back to something that you talked about a few minutes ago, and that is how to create the execution capability within an organization. In the, in the case of Zensar, you talked about uh, one of the key steps was to create that that uh, in, uh, solutions lab, if you will, uh, and that became essentially the way that you were able to not just win clients, but also uh, uh, delight clients uh, in the process. So, when you when you look at that step, and a lot of us in the audience are part of that step in in our own ways. When we are part as as part of an organization, we are brought together to create uh, a, a new project uh, mentality, a new project uh, uh, DNA, if you will, as you as you did in the case of ITS and 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 Zensar. Uh, so, I, I was just curious, what what advice do you have for us as we're preparing for that type of role? Because many of us in the audience are in various stages of that type of role.
0: Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I think I said it before, but I think it's very simple that you have to, the why, what, how is, I would actually embed it in your head. You know, because, define the why, because as a very famous base, baseball coach is known to have said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So then you will always achieve something and you say, oh, this is what I want to achieve. But if you set that goal, whether it's market leadership, process leadership, you know, ESG leadership, whatever, that's your first thing. Then you, as said, assemble the right team. There's no perfect team. You will always not get Jesus Christ to walk in and be the project leader. But I mean, given the resources you have, how do you train them, hone their skills to make that happen? And then how do you define the bar? I mean, how do you define the milestones going forward? And this is, I mean, we can call success, not when some small outcome has been reached, because we need those little small successes. But what does success really mean to us? Is it transformational? I mean, I, I do a lot of talking on this concept called ambidextrous mm-hmm. innovation. So ambidextrous innovation is exactly that. I mean, if you look at Amazon, for instance, they've been successful because not only have they incrementally innovated all the time, but every one of, th- I mean three or five years they come up with this completely brand new idea which changes the world. Initially it was Amazon itself, then it was Amazon Prime, now Amazon Web Services, that's success. I think we need to be, I mean first we have to feel. They have to ask ourselves. See there are some CEOs who are what I call maintainers, very happy to chug along, company growing 3%, 4%, 5%. But people who want to lead, and I hope all of you in this audience are, you have to look at yourself, take yourself seriously first and say, what is my motivation? Why do I want to start? And then make it.
2: Uh, I just want to build on that, uh, Ganesh. Uh, what we've learned in the work that we do with organizations and with individuals is number one, we, we, we've we learned that the new normal, if you will, in, in project and program management is, is uh, The ability to be able to reimagine the way work needs to be done. You talked about that a second ago. Uh, So no no more Band-Aids, there's no point in doing a a Band-Aid. It's how to rethink, reimagine the way something needs to be done. Uh, The second is the ability to work cross-functionally. Now, that sounds easier said than done, but uh, I think Ganesh will tell you from his experience that one of the most critical skills that a leader has is to be able to create uh, cross-functional working within his or her organization. And then the third element, Erica, that we learned uh, uh, is is really how to deal with resistance to change, especially in uh, established organizations where you're creating a new project paradigm or a program paradigm. It's how to break down some of the cultural resistance to that uh, over time. So it's change management. Oh,
0: absolutely. And in fact there's a very interesting question that's come up. We've done humongous research on this because one of the one of our biggest areas is actually new skills. And we found that look, I mean, I don't know how many of you know, but e learning for this. I mean, you all heard of Coursera's and Skillsofts and everything else. I mean, do you know that less than eight percent of e learning courses get completed by people? I mean, like around, oh, we can learn by ourselves I and mean, even I mean, we've discovered, I, I personally think that in schools, for instance, the so-called Zoom-based learning in classrooms would have set up, set back our knowledge by at least one year. We've discovered it much later, not now. Similarly, I mean, when you put, day, when you, if you take 40 new people and put them to a, let's say you attend this class on whatever, Java, project management, whatever, and put them into a class, I mean, there's a lecturer, maybe there are 40 of them sitting in the room. I can promise you the learning retention is less than 10% because we are all distracted with our little WhatsApp devices. So every five minutes we go look at our phone and nobody can stop us from doing that. We'll do it under the table and do whatever okay. and we don't learn and e-learning doesn't work. So what do we do? How do we get people to upgrade their skills? We actually did a huge amount of research with multiple millennials on this. People said, guys, I mean, don't put me into a class with 40 people. Don't assume that as I'm dumb as my neighbor or I'm more intelligent than my neighbor, whichever way it is. Okay. We said, look, what do you want? You said, give me the tools to manage my own learning. So we actually went out and we kind of invested in and this. is a very interesting model. And AI was just coming in and we said, look, what's the idea? Here's this new person. Okay, uh, Aditi has joined the organization. Maybe she has one year experience. And she's worked for six months. Organization knows her a little bit. So we know her background, what her skills are. So she goes in and she interacts with the little bot. And The bot says, hi, Aditi. I'm here to manage your next three years of your career. So she's already interested. So the bot asks look, I mean, so what do you want to do, Aditi? And I mean, when I say ask, it need not be voice. It's all interaction on the computer. He said, look, I'm in uh, service, but I think I would like to be in sales. So can I do that? So the bot says, sure. He says, look, I mean, let's look at your last appraisal, your previous company or whatever, it says all these things. So now you want to be in sales. So If to be in sales, you need to unlearn three or four things that you've learned in service. You need to learn these ten new skills and you need to upgrade four you know, skills. Are you willing to do it? So Aditi says, what's the benefit? So then the computer, she'll see this graph. And if I'm in sales and I'm successful, I can make two times as much money as being in service. And she said, okay, let me try this. So the part says, okay, fine. Now let's show you what skills. Are. Then it goes into course, error or skill soft. It goes into the organization's training content and say, look, here are the courses you could possibly do. And let's space it out. You do it over the next six months or whatever. Don't, don't kind of kill yourself, you don't have to go into attend a classroom, etc. So I other thing that's interesting "Oh, this even I can handle. And then she says, but look, has somebody done this before? So the bot will connect her to somebody in a peer group, not somebody as old as me, certainly not even as old as Trini, but somebody who's maybe two years older than her, say, look, you talk to her, and she'll tell you how to do it. And then she gets a mentor, she gets all this, and suddenly found that we doing this process, and there is what we call adaptive learning nowadays. That you know, you Srini may learn better by by reading a lot, because he's more intellectual than I am. I have zero attention span. I'll learn better by watching conversations like this or watching videos, etc. etc. So adaptive learning is wrapped into your style. So by changing the pedagogy based on the individual, changing the learning map based on the individual, changing the pace based on the individual, we are finding that learning effectiveness grows up by 80%. So to answer your question, Gichar skills of learning more and adding to wisdom and knowledge is the most difficult to do in today's very frenetic distracted times and the most useful is to enable people to do it on a personalized basis and today technology enables us to do that so that's why i said earlier on using commonly available technology and commonly everything is available i mean what i just talked about is not rocket science there are bots everywhere there is ai floating around which we don't know what to do with. There are all kinds of cool immersive technologies. I mean, yesterday somebody was telling me, "How do you teach a child to understand 40 fish in an aquarium?" It's a very simple. You say, "Well, take the guy, take the child to the aquarium 40 times, and whatever fish he sees, he'll understand." But they're building a new aquarium in Worli in Mumbai, which is actually funded by the Jindal family. One of my very young friends is building out this.
2: Aquarium. It's
0: really amazing. He showed it to me just two days ago in Bombay. Go in there, there's a glass wall with an aquarium, completely artificial. So, all these fishes are floating, boring. And the minute they, the child enters, they give him a little drawing fish, it's, it's a template, and they give him a box of crayons. So, he colors the fish a little bit of red, a little bit of blue, da da da, all the unusual colors. And then they take, I mean, they, they put it under a an augmented reality camera. And before you know it, the child's fish is also swimming in the aquarium. The child says, Oh my god, this is the fish I drew. And that fish we take him through this journey and go interact with the shark and then you can, the child can point to the shark and say, yeah, He is eating me. And then you know, suddenly before you know it, he's learned the attributes, the habits of 20 different animals in the aquarium. And he's also told that, look, if you don't feed your fish every 20 minutes, he'll die. So He also knows how to take care of fish. You know? And so I'm, I'm, I found that in one hour, a child would learn much more interactively than he would learn if his parent took him to the aquarium for times. I'm giving you a completely random example. But what makes us think that the 27-year-old young person that we have is not as distracted as a child? And why can't we use VR, AR, immersive technologies, everything that we talk about? So there's just one one use case of skills. Believe me, in every aspect that you have today, you have technology available. But we have to apply our minds and saying, how do we make it?
2: What an amazing uh, uh, interaction, Ganesh. I think we're, at the, unfortunately, at the end of the hour, Uh, We could probably go on, and I think the audience would probably like to listen to you more, but we we have to end here. And I just want to thank you for not just sharing your wisdom, but the passion. That's the one thing that I've always admired about you. We really thank you for literally sharing the wisdom that you've accumulated over the years by building... and and making things happen with your hands. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.